so this is your first one here. Yeah. Students from... Uh, for this week's serious security seminar, our speaker today. I don't think the mic is on. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the serious security seminar at Purdue University. Our speaker today is a PhD student in computer science here at Purdue, uh, Corey Menchuhan. Corey. Hello everyone. Uh, welcome to my talk. So, as Joe said, I'm a PhD student in the Department of Computer Science. And I'm also a member of Sirius. And today I will give a talk about data privacy and anonymized data. Um, so here's the plan of my talk. So first I will talk about why we need data privacy in today's world. And then I will give a brief summary of some of the common data privacy standards. Um, and then I will continue to my talk by giving some of the data anonymization techniques. Uh, and then I will give two examples, if we have enough time, of anonymization uh, applications, like querying anonymized data or mining anonymized data. And then I will give a brief conclusion by outlining what kind of concepts I talked to you about today and what to keep in mind. So um, I hope things will be more clear in the end of this talk about the field. So let's start. So why do we need, why? Why do we need anonymized data? So as probably you know, in today's world, data sharing is very uh, common. And there are many examples of it. I mean, cloud computing is just one very common example. Even in my daily life, I prepared these slides and I stored it in the cloud using Dropbox. And so we all provide some data, some sort of, to the third parties in today's world. But we don't know what kind of things they can do with the data that we provide to them. And especially after 2010, with the rise of internet and social net network, especially with Facebook and Twitter, there are too many sources of information on the web about us or, or anyone. So, and these kinds of issues, sharing the data to the third parties, and the rise of social network, they cause us privacy concerns. So I will just give two examples of what kind of concerns I'm talking about. So the first example is, about, is from 2002. And in 2002, we know that there was no Facebook, no Twitter. There was just MSM Messenger. And cloud computing wasn't even a big trend. And in 2002, Laura Sivini was able to identify um, from the publicly available medical records uh, the governor of Massachusetts. And she was able to find his medical condition from the publicly available data just using for, uh, an external data that he, uh, she purchased for $20 for voting, so public voting records. And she just used three pieces of information from the public voting records, just the age, the zip code, and gender of the governor. And she mentions that 87% of the US population is actually unique using just age, zip code, and gender information. And using these, she says that, like I did for governor of Massachusetts, everyone can be identified with a little bit of effort. And in 2011, of course, it's impossible to avoid a Facebook example in a data privacy talk. So Facebook is known selling all of our users' information uh, to the advertisers and to any app developers. And even they are known to sell our home addresses or phone numbers if we provide them to the third-party websites such as Yelp to provide better services. And these two examples 
show us that there is a concern, but saying that we cannot share any kind of data is really not realistic in this world, in today's world, because we love the convenience of it. It's in our lives. And since it's not realistic, we in U.S. government, I mean, there are also European regulations about it, but U.S. government introduced after 2000s two regulations. So I just picked here HIPAA, which is one of the first ones uh, about Healthcare Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And we also have the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which was introduced to in 2013 by Federal Trade Commission. So, in general, I will just give an example from HIPAA, and if you see the material in the literature, they all mention this, but it's very important. So, why do we worry about the shared data? Uh, because even the regulations say the beneficial usage of the data is more important than just identifying the peoples itself. So, what in concrete example, it's okay to identify the governor of Massachusetts in the previous example that I've just given, but they say if the medical records can be used to improve, to provide better services and medical treatments to the patients, then it's okay just sharing the data in some sense. But um, here, they also force that there should be some precautions to avoid some level of identification. And what I would tell is that this brings us to the purpose of this talk. So we want to make data as much as useful as possible. So it should be useful, it should be beneficial, but we should minimize the personal identification. So these introduces the data privacy standards that CS, um, CS major came up, CS researchers came up, and also brings us to the anonymized data and anonym data anonymization techniques. So now I will talk about data uh, privacy standards. Um, I won't be able to give you all the standards here, obviously, but I will just give you a brief summary and I will just outline the two of them. Um, the ones that I will talk about here today requires the concept of attribute division. So, Laura Sivini, who did this work with the publicly available Massachusetts medical records, uh, she, essentially, she essentially grouped attributes into three groups. And the first group that she made is the identifier attributes. Uh, so, she says that if we have a data table A to anonymize, we always have first identifier attributes. So these are the attributes that you can use to identify anyone. So it's like social security number, first name, last name, taxpayer ID, this kind of information. So you don't need another data table to identify people. And the second group of attributes that she mentions are the CASA identifier attributes. So they have still powerful identi uh, identification properties given another table. So if we go to the original example that I gave in the beginning, so the information that she used uh, for public voters registration list is the additional data table B, and she can use it as a, in the literature they say it as background knowledge, so she can use it to identify precisely one person, the governor. And some examples are zip code, birth date, and gender. And the last group is the sensitive attributes. So basically, we just don't want people to know what these attribute values are for a given individual. They can be gender orientation, they can be medical condition, um, and so on and so on. So, so the first standard that I will talk about is K-anonymity. So basically, what it says is that we have a bunch of case identifier attributes. Let's say that those combination of values for each case identifier attributes record in a data table, let's say that those records, they occur at least k times. Uh, so the basic idea of it is that you cannot identify specific, specifically a data record. So 
in this example, this, this is the one that I retrieved from Laura Sivini's paper. So you can notice that she uses as Kaiser identifier attributes like race, birth, gender, and zip. And the medical problem is the sensitive attribute. So what she says is that this is an example of K anonymous, two anonymous data set. So K is equal to two here. And if you look at this table in detail, you will see that every record, there is at least one more record which has the same values in the race, birth, gender, and zip values. So if you look at the first record, the person who is black, who was born in 1965, who has, the ma who has a gender male and who lives in the region 0214 star. I will talk about star more later, so don't worry about it. So you will notice that the second record is exactly the same as the first record. So there are two of values like that. Um, so she's, she claims that since we cannot identify specifically which, uh, which record belongs to which person, we don't know what the sensitive attribute is, and everything is good. But then this new idea in 2006 rises. Um, so it's called L-diversity, and it's another data privacy standard. So they say that K-anonymity is actually not enough. Uh, and you can see it in this four anonymous data. And if you look at the records from 9 to 12, you will notice that the data is for anonymous, so we cannot identify, even with another data table, which record belongs to which specific person. But we know that all the records from 9 to 12, they have the sensitive attribute cancer. So even though we cannot identify precisely the person, we know for sure his or her medical condition. So it really doesn't matter unless you assure the diversity of the sensitive attributes. That's what they exactly say. And they define the idea of L-diversity. So the they, they, from the previous example, this data table has exactly three groups or blocks. Some people call it blocks. Some people call it groups. I prefer calling it groups. but. So this data table has just three groups, and each group has four records. And they say that a data table A to anonymize is composed of such groups, and the group Q has at least K records. So in the previous example, it has at least four records. And what L-diversity says is that each group in this data table should have at least L different sensitive attribute values. So if we go to the next slide, you will see that the way that the records are ordered in the table is totally changed, so it's not consecutive anymore. And we can see that this is still a four anonymous table. So every group is composed of four records, and they are all generalized, so we still can't identify precisely a person. But you can see that everyone has one over three chance, one over L chance, of having a specific medical condition. So you can see that no one has cancer for sure. And another privacy standard is differential privacy. So I won't talk a lot about this. So this is also introduced in 2006 by Cynthia Dever. And you can see her work. But I will just say that it's, it's a breakthrough because it just assumes that there is no separation in the groups of attributes. So what she says is that uh, it's not meaningful to separating them. And she shows theoretically that perfect privacy is impossible anyway, if we want to provide to the people some usefulness in the data. But, um, but the, the, it has some issues with certain applications, such as text, etc. I won't elaborate a lot. So in the audience, I have a colleague, Bala, who will elaborate about this more in uh, two weeks. So I think it's a topic which requires a special session just on it. So, so I will just skip it. 
And I can also mention some other privacy standards that I will skim through quickly. And I'm proud to say that Purdue is quite active in defining privacy standards, especially another serious member, Professor Ninguli. He has been working a lot on T-closeness and other types of adversity that I will talk later. And um, you can also check out other extensions of K-anonymity called Alpha K-anonymity. So basically, all of these standards, they are defined based on some vulnerabilities that people defined over the last 10 years from 2000s, from early 2000s. And uh, every one of them tried to handle one flaw that they noticed. But uh, apart from the privacy standards, one last thing to talk about is, of course, secure multi-party computation. And my advisor, Chris Clifton, has a lot of work about it. And um, my colleague here, Bala, again, he has some published work about it. So he will also emphasize in his talk more about this field. So I will also skip that. So now I will just talk about the data anonymization techniques. So um, the data anonymization techniques, so I defined why we need data privacy, why we need, um, and I, I also talked about some data privacy standards. So obviously now I'm talking about data anonymization techniques. So data anonymization techniques, they are just some stuff which makes sure that when we release the data table A in my example, it satisfies certain data privacy standards such as K-anonymity or diversity. So I will talk about two data anonymization techniques. So the first one is going to be about K-anonymity and the second one will be about L-diversity. So the first one is generalization and suppression. So it's also introduced by Laura Sivini in 2002 right after K-anonymity. So basically she says that we can make people unidentifiable in the table by just generalization of the values. What do we mean by generalization? It's just replacement of a value with a less specific value. If you have a numeric value, such as zip code, like 02138, you just replace the last digit by a star character. And if you have a little bit different values, like discrete values, like Asian, white, black, you just replace it as person. And suppression is just replacing the values uh, with a generic value using star sign. And I should note that in this idea, every value is generalized in the end to all stars. So you just replace it with something empty. And in the generalization, there is always a hierarchy. Uh, we call it DGH and VGH, so it's domain generalization hierarchy and value generalization hierarchy. So I will explain you more about it. So these are two examples of that kind of hierarchies. So you can notice that the first one is about zip code and the value generalization hierarchy is just a tree. It's basically a tree with values on the leaf as the specific attribute values. And if you go from leaf to the root of the tree, at every level, every depth, every height of the tree, you have somehow a generalized value. And at the root, we have the suppressed maximum, as I just said. So it's just stars all over. And it's the same if you don't have a numeric value. It's a bit different um, in the sense that you can see in the race hierarchy, so it's just generalized to person, the specific race values. Of course, these are just two examples, so you can just make it as, as big as you want, the trees. It depends on how you define them. And if you notice it on the left side, we have the domain generalization hierarchies. So basically, if you look at the tree and the, the tree one and the set one, they are in the same line, all parallel, they just have the same values. So domain generalization hierarchy is just another way of writing the same information, same thing. Um, so she defined an algorithm. I won't elaborate a lot about the algorithm. 
So I will just give a sketch of it. So it's just a three-step algorithm. So obviously she wants to make as minimum as possible the generalization operation. And for that she defines a precision measure. So what precision measures is that how much do we do the generalization across all the cell values in a data table? So if we have maximal, like if the precision measure becomes big, it means that uh, we didn't generalize a lot. And if we have a small precision measure value, it means that we, we generalized a lot. So few generalization, high precision value, low generalization, low precision value. And what she does is that she takes the data table A to anonymize and then she creates all possible generalized tables from it. It includes even the tables with all suppressed maximal, all star values around. And then among them she picks the ones which satisfies the k-anonymity ones, the k-anonymity standard. Uh, and then in the final step she just picks the table which has the maximal precision value. And the second data anonymization technique is anatomy. I could have given the same idea that the folks who introduced the adversity first used, but I changed a little bit the anonymization standard here. So this is another anonymization standard called anatomy. So what it does is that it's also introduced in 2000, sorry, it's also introduced in 2006, right after the introduction of L diversity. So what it does is that it just divides a data table. So in this example, we have a data table of uh, eight records. And the data table has attributes, age, sex, and zip code, which can be used as case identifiers, and the sensitive attribute disease. So what they do is that let's separate age, sex, and zip code, and the disease, and put them in separate tables. And let's make sure that every record in the table which contains the age, sex, and zip code, it should match to the L potential diseases in the other data table, in the L potential records in the other table which contains the disease. And this is just the example, the result of that kind of operation. So you can see that the first record who has the age 23 and who is male and who lives in 11K zone, he, he can only have two medical conditions, either dyspepsia and pneumonia. And if you check the other records in this data table, you will see the similar behavior about them. So, and it has an algorithm called bucketization. So what it does is that it just takes the original data table, in this example, the disease, in step one, it puts all the records uh, into the, in a hash table with buckets, and each bucket contains the records belonging to a specific uh, disease type in this case, sensitive attributes. So pneumonia diseases, so the record number one and the record number four are put in the same bucket. And then the record five and the record seven who have flu, they are put in the same bucket. And it just goes on like that. So it creates the buckets. And then in the step two, it just, from these buckets, it picks, according to the given L, it just picks the L number of records. And when it picks, it just picks one random record in each bucket. And in the end, there will be some remaining buckets, there will be less than L. So if we have like four diverse data, if we want to do a four diverse data, in the end of this algorithm, we will have three buckets, three or two buckets, depending on what kind of distribution we have. And it just assigns the remaining tuples into the existing groups. And then it just creates the separate tables from it. Um, so, uh, there are also other data anonymization techniques. Um, there is a better k-anonymity algorithm, I mean anonymization for k-anonymity in 2006. You can also check the case for multiple sensitive attributes. There are also other improvements on anatomy by the faculty here again. 
by Ningguli and his students. And he also suggests the other idea that I mentioned in the beginning in 2012 for L-diversity slicing. Um, I won't elaborate about these two, but uh, if you're interested, you can just visit his personal page and find one of these papers. Um, so now I will just introduce some examples about data anonymization usage. Um, so when I mm, and the examples that I will give, they're about how to query and store the anonymized data and how to mine the anonymized data. And each example will be belonging to a specific privacy standard. So obviously it will be either canonymity application or L-diversity application. So the first example is about querying anonymized data. And I'm proud to say that this application was developed by a senior student in our lab in Purdue again, by Erhan Nergis in 2011. And then he also, had a, he also has other work, which was published in 2013. Um, so I will just explain here briefly his first version, so his work's first version. So the first one in, so here uh, he uses the anatomy model, and it's a little bit augmented version of it. So, it so this is an L-diversity application. And it's a data outsourcing scenario. And as you can see, we have again a client which has some data and outsources to some server, which handles that kind of operation that I just defined, bucketization, tables, separation into tables, anonymization. And then after doing this kind of operation and some encryptions that I will just show, it just sends it to a third party server to store it. Um, and this database operation is defined for, this database is defined for operations in this schema. Um, the operations are selection, insertion, and update operations. So I will just emphasize here the selection operation. And you can, and this is the idea, and this is the theory that he developed in, the, in 2011. In his 2013 work, you can also see insertion and update. So. I will just now talk about the selection that he did. And I will just go through an example and I will avoid any kind of theory that he did in that paper. So if you look at the query, we have a patient table, which you can see in the example below. Oh, first, I have to mention that if you noticed from the previous examples that I have given when I entered in the first part of the talk, there are two additional fields in this separate table. So they are, they are called sequence numbers. So that was his idea of augmenting the original scheme. So what he did is that he just used a sequence number to identify which record in the first case identifier table, the table on the left, matches to the which record on the table on the right. So for example, if he wants to match the Eric with a specific medical condition, he knows that he has to decrypt the relevant records in the sensitive table. And after the decryption of the first attribute that I call H in the parenthesis sequence, he obtains the precise value of the sequence numbers. And he notices that the second record, which has the medical disease fever and the value, the first attribute value, H sub K2 in the parenthesis 2, it has actually the sequence number 2 after the decryption of the H sub K2. So it matches Eric with H22, who lives in Richmond, to the second record, which is the fever disease. So this is how he, how he uses the selection operation. And the key idea that he uses here is that he says that the data publisher, they don't have to, the client, they don't have to do anything, uh, I mean everything about the query processing. So what he says is that if you look at the where condition in this query, there is age, which could be processed just on the table on the left. And then there is disease in the second condition within the parentheses, uh, 
between two ends. So it's either so it's disease is equal to flu or disease is equal to cough. And you can see that it can be only processed on the second table, on the sensitive table. And you can see that the third condition is disease is equal to cough or address is equal to Lafayette. And you can see that these two conditions can also be executed separately on two different tables. So what he says is that given a data query on this canonical format, he just defines out a way of splitting the queries into two tables in the third parties. So third parties run these individual queries on, its, on each specific data table and then they just return to results based on the results uh, the client is able to reassociate the right query answer. And the result of this query will return in the next slide, the first line. So after dividing this query on the top onto two tables, so it just you can just see that on the server we have two tables as a result of that selection operation splitting. And the left side is the result of the query um, on the case identifier table. And the right side is the result of the query on the sensitive table. And then client combines these two tables. And then after the decryption of the sequence numbers H sub K27 and H sub K28, it is able to match that Jason, who has age 47 and who lives in Lafayette, it can be matched to the disease cough. Because as you can see, they have the same encrypted values. Actually, he used in his example the encrypted version, but uh, yeah, the idea is the same. So this is one application of anatomy and I'll diversity standard. Um, and I won't elaborate more about this, so I will more talk about the anonymization examples now. So, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I will talk more about mining the anonymization, uh, the anonymized data. And the first example is about k-anonymity, <laughs> the generalization methods. And this idea is developed by Inan et al. in 2009. So basically he says that we want to, we want to classify a k-anonymous data and we want to learn the sensitive attribute using the k-identifier attributes in the k-anonymous data. And they do it for nearest neighbor and support vector machine algorithms. And uh, the two key ideas here is again, the first idea is again, some kind of augmentation of the existing generalization. So if you look at the example here, you can see that in the data table, uh, there are two attributes which are generalized. They are case identifiers. The attribute A sub 1 is dedication, masters and senior, senior section. And the second attribute is just age. So it is the generalized age between 35 and 37 and between 1 and 35. So they say that for every generalized record within a group, so there are two groups here, obviously. The first groups are from record 1 to 3 and the second groups, and the second group is from, is from record 4 to 6. And you can see that for each attribute, it provides some statistics. So, he, for example, in the first record, it says that for the first record, it has, I mean, all the, all the records in this group, uh, they have the value masters. So it, it has a probability one. So it's for sure that it will have the value masters. And for the second attribute, it just gives the average of the age values. So it just sums up 35 and 37 uh, and other values. I mean, actually, the other values within that group. And then it just says that it divides, it just averages them. So it just divides them. And it provides the variance too. So it's, again, a bit augmentation of it. 
And the second idea is just using these augmentations to provide, to do some approximation for the vector operations over the records. So I won't elaborate more about this, but it's quite an interesting idea. And um, if you're interested, you can read his paper about it. Uh, and it's cited a lot. Uh, and in the last 15 minutes of my talk, I will more focus on what we have done here in Purdue, uh, in my lab, and I will talk about my work on classification trees, and it's also another application of data mining uh, on anonymized data, but we have, in this case, anatomy. And it is, the, of course, the application of L-diversity. It is a classification case on L-diverse data. And... Um, and we used here the augmented version of Erhan, Erhan Nergis, the previous database example. So the learning objective here was to predict a case identifier attribute using the remaining case identifier attributes and the sensitive attributes. So if we go back to the original example, let's say that I just want to predict a person's age using its zip code, occupation, etc., some kind of has identifier attributes and its medical condition. And I would like I want to do it using the decision tree classification. And um, the key idea that I will talk about is the on-the-fly subtrees. So you will see soon what it is. But first I want to give this diagram which outlines in a better way um, where what where my work stands. So uh, if you look at it, the first part, which is about query processing, it's what Erhan did. So we have data publishers, clients. I will use your data publisher term in a more generic sense. And then we have the third parties, which store the data. And we use anatomization. And then we use the SQL queries for selection, right, I just mentioned, uh, uh, to retrieve some data from the stored data on the third parties and what I do is that I just suggest a decision tree learning algorithm and I just say that let's make a collaboration for learning this model using the third party and the data publisher and in this way we can reduce the learning cost or the decision tree building cost on the data publisher and we can also profit from the data, which is outsourced to the third party. Um, elaborating the idea of this collaboration, and um, of course, before elaborating the idea of collaborative decision trees, and uh, the thing that I just mentioned, on-the-fly subtrees, I want to just say, sorry, uh, I want to just say that um, uh, why don't we predict the sensitive attribute like they did in the canonymous data in 2009? We, we, won't want, we don't want to do it because in 2009, in the exactly same year, um, it has been shown that doing such an operation is computationally not tractable. And it requires enumeration of all possible combinations uh, of the data table with the sensitive attributes. So in 2009, Kiefer shows that there are some approxim approximation algorithms, but we just don't want to go into there. And the other thing is, uh, apart from approximating, uh, we just want to learn uh, models without violating anyone's privacy. So uh, we believe that there has been already a lot of effort in attempts to violating the privacy. And we know that the privacy regulations already say that as long as it requires us some usefulness in the data, it's not necessary to really achieve uh, the improved privacy as much as possible. And there is already proof that the perfect privacy is also not possible. So we believe that it's not really important aspect to focus on. 
So um, the first thing is there are two naive approaches here that we can talk about. So um, the first one is let's leave all the learning and storage to third parties and let's assume the data publisher doesn't do anything and it's good in the sense that we don't have any cost for building the decision tree. And the second option is let's consider the sensitive attribute but obviously the third party cannot associate it. So let's leave learning part of the decision tree, the building part of it, to the data publisher and let's assume that the data store is just left to the third parties. And in some sense, both of them might work in some scenarios, but they are not really good solutions. And why they are not is because, uh, number one, in the first option, we never use the sensitive attribute. So we don't know. So we waste the information which is released. And in the second option is that we use, we use all the information, but we don't exploit from the third parties in any way to process building the decision tree. So unless we query what is the purpose of outsourcing them. So, and collaborative decision trees comes in the middle of both trade trade-offs so and from the name you can guess that it just it's just a collaboration of data publisher and the third party for learning so it just leaves storage to the third party but in the learning part in the building part of the decision tree we say that we have two steps so the first step is we just let third party learn the decision tree that we call base decision tree from the case identifier attributes such as age, gender, zip code, occupation. So these are the attributes that we use to learn some decision tree at the third parties. And we assume that they already have a class attribute. I mean the one that we predict for. So if we want to predict, let's say, uh, the number of years they spend in the education, we assume that it's also part of the case identifier attributes. And in the second step, we say that data publisher can retrieve the specific descendants of this tree, the specific leaves of this tree, and then they just learn a little bit more some more subtrees from these leaves. And the reason why we call this on the flies uh, is because in step two, we just don't let the data publisher do in the end right after the step one. So the data publisher does it when it only needs it. So it's an amortization idea. So I will, you will see a little bit more why we call it on the fly in the prediction case. So data publisher, when they make a prediction for a new record, so it involves learning subtrees too. So in the step one, uh, they just send some case identifier values like gender, age, zip code, occupation, and they just expect a relevant tree of those three. Uh, I'm sorry, they just expect as a response a relevant leaf of that tree the base decision tree which is learned at the third party. And in step two, uh, third party obviously sends back this relevant leaf. And then in the last step, what we do is that if we have such leaf, we just look at it. So if it has, if it points to a encrypted subtree, then we just decrypt it and then we just find the relevant leaf of that subtree and just make a decision, make a prediction based on that. And if there is nothing else in this, uh, I mean, if it doesn't point to any subtree like that, encrypted, we just find, we just uh, uh, learn and then encrypt and then send it back to the third party. 
And the reason why we call it on the fly in the previous slide is because let's say that we made 100 predictions and in all 100 of them, we visit the first leaf. So at the first prediction, we learn the leaf, uh, we learn the subtree on that leaf, we just encrypt it and send it, send it back to the third parties. And in all 99 remaining cases, we just retrieve the leaf and then we decrypt the pointing subtree and then we just make the prediction from it. So if the 101st record, uh, if the 101st record visits the second leaf and then it's again a learning phase. So they learn again a new subtree and it just goes on. Um, so this is the basic idea. So we used some experiments obviously about it and we used some open source libraries to implement it. So I won't elaborate a lot about how we evaluated it but we just used the University of California Irvine collection. Uh, probably as you are relevant to the information security, probably you heard about that collection and the adult data set from it. Uh, it's used a lot in any kind of data privacy application and analysis. And there are also other cases of other sets that I used here, but they are much more smaller than the adult data set. So, and obviously it depends on what kind of sensitive attribute we use. So, Anyway, so we, we, did a ten, we, we did a tenfold cross-validation here and we also considered the sensitive attribute and how it would change the resulting decision trees here. So if you would like to learn more, you can just ask me after the presentation and I can just give you a pointer for my paper. So, um, and these are some, uh, uh, and this is just a, uh, and obviously to evaluate it, we just measured the execution times uh, that client would do. And we just compared the accuracies between different three types of decision trees. So yeah. So these are just the graphs which gives the results that we measured. So what we can say is that we managed to save a lot of time. Uh, with reasonably good accuracies on large data set, like adult. Those are the ones that you can see in the graphs in the last two options, like in the last ones. There are five potential rows in this graph, so they are the last two ones. And we tried different options of sensitive attribute for this large data set, and it doesn't change a lot. I didn't explain a lot how I draw these graphs, so I will skip through this part a bit because we are coming to the end of our time. So, um, so I will just briefly mention what we did uh, after the decision trees. So in the decision trees, <coughs> we were able to obtain reasonable results, but it is hard to justify them theoretically because most of the time we know that we like decision trees as computer science perspective because it just works. It just splits things and we can just make predictions on them based on the paths that they follow. But the thing is there are also other pattern recognition or prediction methods. Um, they are near, some of them are nearest neighbor and support vector machine. So I can say that Currently, I can I theoretically show that it's possible to have a nearest neighbor classification, um, and it's possible to have some convergence on this type of data on anatomy, but it slows down a little bit the performance of it, so it increases the execution time and of course the error rate. Um, so we are still doing some experiments on it, so I don't have any solid result about it yet. And we are planning to extend it to support vector machines too. And obviously we would like to see what would it do between this option of L diversity versus the canonymity version of these classifiers that Inanna all presented in 2009. So in conclusion, 
I gave a fast <laughs> and a brief summary about privacy standards. Uh, so we have to keep in mind two standards here, canonymity and diversity. And then I talked about the common anonymization techniques, generalization and anatomy, which lets us achieve these privacy standards. And then I gave an example of uh, application using query processing. And then I gave data mining applications, one for each for canonymity and L-diversity. And I outlined my research idea about L-diversity. So I'm glad to hear your questions if you have any in the end of this talk. Um, uh, I think we run out of time, so it is 5.20. So uh, do you have any questions or any interests? Um, if you if you have some if you I had to go through it very fast because it's a big field and I have been work I mean it has been worked on since 2000 so we are talking about at least 15 years of work just alone for the recent examples. So, and I even had to omit some of the stuff that people even developed in the 70s and 80s and even before 2000s. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for uh, listening and uh, I hope it would be helpful to you to give some directions and uh, I'm uh, glad for giving this talk. Thank you. Yeah. So... Yeah.